Well, good morning, and welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship. It is good to be here with you this morning, and so good to now be looking into God's Word, back in Ephesians, and seeing what God has for us this morning. It was a real mess. I mean, trouble was par for the course when it comes to Paul traveling around and preaching the gospel. You knew there was going to be trouble. There frequently was trouble. But what we see in Acts 21 seems like it's on the verge of a total meltdown. Look at what it says here. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, seeing Paul, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This, this is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, even, he even brought Greeks into the temple. And he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up. And the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. This was bad. This was very bad. Apparently, those limestone signs that we talked about two weeks ago that were on the temple wall separating the, the court of the, of the Jews from that of the Gentiles, they read something like, remember this, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who's caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Apparently, those really meant what they said. And here in Acts, even without any hard evidence, they hadn't seen Trophimus in the court of the Jews. But Paul was hanging out with the Gentile earlier. Paul's now in the temple court. He must have brought him in. And they were ready to grab stones and start doing their worst to Paul. They had no problem with Paul, did they, when, when he was going around and making those arrests, hunting down Christians all over the place, throwing them in prison. But now, but now that he's saying Gentiles can, can even be included into this people of God, preaching Christ to them, they, they wouldn't stand for it. We can't, we can't have this. The dividing line, that wall of hostility, it was very real. Very real, wasn't it? 
The last time we met on our walk through Ephesians, we noticed how Paul was urging Christians to remember that they were once on the outside. They were once the ones looking in. These Gentiles, they weren't part of the people of God. Remember what it said? Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no hope. They were without God in the world. Being on the outside looking in, that is an awful place to be. But as we looked at the words of Paul here in Ephesians, we realized that God's plan all along had, to, had been to bring them in, bring near those who were once far off. This was his plan before the foundation of the world. And he would accomplish that through his son, Jesus Christ. He's the only one that could tear down that wall. That wall of hostility that separated us from each other and it separated us from God as well. The secret to lasting peace was Christ. Now, most people you meet at school or in the workplace or out on the street or maybe even the gro- in the grocery store, they would agree that peace is something that we need in our world, something that we want. On a global scale, we need nations to come together and, and be at peace with one another. On a national level, we need peace between party lines. We need peace between the races. We need peace on our city streets, on our freeways, peace on our school campuses. And this past week, we saw the need for peace in a Trader Joe's grocery store in Los Angeles, didn't we? We need peace desperately. We need peace in our homes. We need it in our relationships with our children. Peace with our spouses. Peace with our finances. Peace within our own bodies, right? Some of you were experiencing war that is going on inside your very own bodies. We need peace there. We need peace in our minds and peace with our emotions that just seem to run away without us. Ask any beauty pageant contestant, they'll tell you, peace. That's what we want. We want world peace. But you know, then ask them, how do we get this peace? That's another question, isn't it? I mean, that's a question for the ages. That's one, if if you have the answer, man, you could be the most popular person on this planet. We give awards to peacemakers, don't we? Alfred Nobel the man credited with inventing dynamite. It's kind of ironic that he wrote in his will that each year a prize would be given out. It would be awarded to the person who is determined to have done the most or the best work for fraternity between nations, for the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and for the holding and promotion of peace Congresses. But you know, since 1901, 131 of these awards have been given out. Where's the peace? What's going on here? We're still looking for it, right? If, they would, if these people would have only looked to online to WikiHow, I don't know if you've ever gone there, 
they have the solution laid out in 11 simple steps for creating peace in our world. It's as easy as journaling and, and living in the moment and being thankful. I won't read you the whole list here. The reality is, even the wiki how method, it only takes us so far. Only so far. According to the Bible, there is only one solution to, to peace that is real, to peace that is lasting. And that's found in Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians 2, 14 to 18, Paul tells us how this peace came about. Would you turn there with me? Ephesians 2, we're going to read from verse 14. And if, as you're turning there, you would stand with me in honor of this great word that God has given us and and respect for it and and recognition that this is authoritative in our lives. This is where we look. We're not looking to psychological journals. We're not looking to TV pop psychologists or anything like that. We look to God's word when we want the final word. It says this in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in... Actually, let's look at verse 11 here. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is good. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. At just the the quickest glance here, you see three things about Jesus. You see that he is, he himself is peace. You see that he came and made peace. And then you see in verse 17 that he came and preached peace. Every Christmas, churches around the world, they turn to Isaiah 9. And they read verse 2, which says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And then verse 6, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
from the words of the prophet, the Jewish people, they had reason to believe that peace was coming. We read a few weeks ago in Isaiah 57, verse 19, peace, the prophet says, peace, he repeats, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. A coming peace was foretold. And God didn't give step-by-step instructions for how, to, how human beings could create peace among himself. He didn't just say, well, just pass these laws, and if you just educate in this certain way, and you just make sure that everyone is treated fairly and given the same income here and has all the same toys. No, 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 he doesn't do that. Instead, he tells them, peace is coming. I'm sending peace to you. But when? How long do we have to wait? And how long can this world hold together until that peace shows up? Luke 2.13 The wait's over. The wait is over. The sky opens up for an incredible announcement that peace has arrived. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. As he grew up, as he walked, as he talked, the Prince of Peace spoke of peace. It wasn't a pep talk. It wasn't about being nice, about shaping up, about getting along with everyone. Instead, he says, peace, I leave with you. John fourteen twenty seven. peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This peace that the peacemaker, the prince of peace, brings is a peace that is superior to all other pieces that the world has ever experienced. Our treaties, they're inevitably broken. I read something the other day that treaties often last, peace treaties often last an average of two years. People continue to be more concerned with self-interest, self-preservation, self-esteem, self-promotion, self-glory than the interests of others, don't they? And we look out at the world outside, sometimes just across the street or even over the fence next door, and we look with suspicion, with critical eyes, with judgment in our hearts. We're constantly sizing each other up, aren't we? Identifying friend or foe, concerned with what others might take from us or what we might get from them. Humanity is divided. It's an us-versus-them world. It's a dog-eat-dog world. It all stems from, we know this, because we've been, we've been saturated in Ephesians for the past several months. We know where it stems, stems from. It stems from our own fallen hearts. We're driven by things like pride and fear and selfishness and apathy and insecurity and doubt and guilt and greed and hate and feelings of... Well, Feelings of hopelessness. 
But Jesus came to do what no one else was able to do. Jesus came to bring peace. His peace. He was peace. He made peace. And he preached peace. The question before us this morning is how did he do it? What did he do? Well, Paul makes it very, very clear here. He did it by abolishing the law. He did it by abolishing the law, which had two results. It resulted in the creation of a new humanity, and it resulted in their reconciliation to God. This is good news. What do, you mean, what do we mean by, when we say that Jesus came to abolish the law? Because that sounds pretty harsh, um, and it sounds like he is kind of rebelling almost against God's initial plan. Is that what's going on here? Did he look at God's system, or maybe God looked at his own system and said, ah, this was a nice try, but uh, I need to send Jesus in here, and he needs to fix this thing because it just spiraled out of control, and we got a mess on our hands here. Was Jesus rising up and fighting, raging against the machine? Is that what's happening here? We look at what Paul writes in verse 14 and 15 again. It says, He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in in ordinances. First of all, I guess we need to talk about what is the law that we're talking about here. God separated for himself a people, a people known as Israel. He said, you will be my people, I will be your God. And he gave them his law, this guiding structure by which they would be able to continue in right relationship with him. Now some people looked at the law and they thought of it as a type of ladder. As as a way by which a person, by following this law, each step they could by careful observation, by fastidious observance, might be able to climb their way up to God. That's what that rich young ruler that we read about thought. He kneels down before Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He, he claimed to have followed all the commandments. Don't murder? Check. Don't commit adultery? Check. Don't steal? Check. Don't bear false witness? Don't defraud? Honor your father and mother? Check, check, double check. I've done it all. As far as he was concerned, he was on his way up. And yet for some reason, something inside of him still brought him to ask that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life. It's, it's almost like there was a realization that even though I've been following the law, there still it seems like I'm not quite there. In the moments that followed, Jesus responds, and, and in the words that Jesus responds, it's almost like Jesus held up a mirror to him. A mirror that showed this man what was really going on inside his heart. And the next thing we know, he turns and walks away sorrowful. Why was he sorrowful? Why would he walk away sad? Was Jesus not affirming? Had he not measured up? He's sorrowful because to be saved by the law 
you have to follow it perfectly. The smallest deviation, the slightest failure will incur the full force of the punishment that it prescribes. There are no degrees here. We're all familiar with the little phrase, uh, a little white lie. It's just a little white lie. It's no big deal. Everybody does it. But in the law that God gave, there's no such thing. A lie is a lie. And God makes it very clear that he hates lies. James 2.10 tells us this. He says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one incy, weensy, tiny point, has become guilty of all of it. The rich young man, he walks away sorrowful because Jesus showed him that he hadn't followed it perfectly. In fact, he had violated the very first of the commandments. Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. And when Jesus told him that he needed to sell everything that he owned and give it to the poor, guess what he realized? There's an idol in my life. Yeah, I, I, I don't go to the pagan temples and I don't bow down and I don't give my offerings and I don't do all those things the real sinners do out there. And yet, I'm a violator. I have another God in my life, one that I'm not willing to let go of. And Jesus zeroed right in on it. But he seemed like such a nice guy, didn't he? I mean, I just want to, I'd love to be friends with this guy. He seems like just an upstanding young man, making his way, you know, doing his best. He's probably well liked by everyone. I know, I know. He may have been farther up the ladder than some people, but when it came down to it, when it came down to it, all the cards laid out on the table. He just didn't have what it took to climb high enough. He didn't have what it took. And that's the sad reality of us all. That's the state of humanity as we talked about a couple months ago. Psalm 14.2, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. If the law is a ladder, then the law is a ladder that none of us can climb. Rather being a tool to, to help us get closer to God, offering a way for us to be saved, the law does far more to show us how we just fall short. It's, it's more like a mirror, really, than it is a ladder. More like a mirror. But still, having the law was better than not having the law, right? Doesn't that somehow get us a little closer? Aren't there some points that we should get for trying, for being God's people? The Jewish people were the near. 
In some sense, they were closer to God than those non-Jewish people, right? They were the near, the Gentiles were the far. They were the ones who were singled out. They had the commandments. God had revealed some things about himself to them. He had made promises to them. They looked forward to the day when God would send a Messiah, when he would send that anointed one and he would save them, right? They were on the track, And everyone else, all those other nations, were on another. And it wasn't going a good direction. And this developed in their minds a very clear dividing line. And even, as we looked a couple weeks ago, even a a hatred for others. They, They had the law. The dividing line was real. You know, today we have dividing lines, don't we? Dividing lines that are very, very real. When I was growing up, and I heard of things like racism, turmoil, that kind of stuff. I, I thought that was a thing of the past. I was a homeschool kid. Growing up in a big family, yes, we had some tension in that family. It was not always you know, roses there. But, but looking out at the world, it just seemed like everything was going fine. I was ignorant of so many different things that were going on there. That I learned as I grew up of the history of our nation of the slavery that existed. I learned of the civil war. I learned of the racism that that existed for decades following that. And I learned of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. But that was all in the past. I mean, I, I grew up in a church where there were all different colors going on here. And we all seemed to get along and we all seemed to love each other. Red, yellow, black, or white, all are precious in his sight. But you know, the longer I live, the more I come to realize the dividing lines, the tension, the hatred that exists in our world today. It doesn't take long to look at the news and realize there's a serious problem here. But what's even more alarming to me is the realization that so much of that exists in my own heart. And I was not even aware and not even sure where it comes from. It plays out in uh, generalities that I find myself making. It plays out in discomfort I feel sometimes when I'm around certain people. It, It plays out in suspicions I look, I see, and all of a sudden I'm making assumptions here and I'm suspicious, maybe even fearful. It it shows its ugly head as frustration starts welling up inside of me. And this is all the result of sin in my life. It all points to my failure to keep God's law, my inability to look at other human beings and see them as as God-created human beings, people made in the image of my Father in heaven. My failure to do that, rather than what I do is I, I dwell on superficial differences things that make me distinct from other people. And pride sets in. And fear sets in. Sometimes apathy sets in. That's alarming. But thank God for Ephesians 2.13. 
but now in Christ Jesus. See, my sinful heart, it goes astray. And I like to look at myself and I like to compare myself with everyone else. And I like to say, Jared is a little bit better than these people over here, so so I'm good, right? But no, I am not. Because God's law does what it's supposed to do. It's held up in front of me and I all of a sudden realize there are things wrong here. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus Christ because I need a Savior. Just like all of us in this room. Just like our world needs a Savior. But now in Christ Jesus. Well, what now in Christ Jesus? What did he do? What difference does he make? It says, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and is broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do it? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. Well, that doesn't quite make sense to me. How does that work? The Jewish law, it was a barrier between them and the Gentiles. And it was a barrier between everyone and God. And Jesus, he came to remove that barrier. Does that mean that the law was bad like we asked earlier? No, it doesn't mean that the law was bad. Rather than throw it to the ground and say, this was a terrible law and it should have never been written, uh, I abolish you. Rather than do, do that, what does Jesus do? He comes and he fulfills the law that we couldn't fulfill. He came to meet its requirements that we weren't able to. He came to climb the ladder that was impossible for us to climb, to reach what we were unable to reach. And he also came to suffer the consequences that we had incurred from our failure to climb that ladder as well, to reach the last rung. When Paul uses that word abolish here in Ephesians 2.15, he's not saying that Jesus destroyed the law as if it was something bad. God didn't make a mistake. Jesus didn't come to correct it. Instead, when he says abolish, he's saying that Jesus canceled it, canceled the requirements. He nullified it. He voided the requirements. In Romans 7, 6, it says this, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we, we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He's saying that the, the hold that the law once had on your life and on my life, that hold has now been released because of what Jesus did. How did he do it? He did it by being our representative, and he did it by being our substitute. And when a batter is determined that he's unfit to run the bases, maybe he was injured, maybe he was struck by the pitch, and, uh, or maybe he's a slow runner, and they, they can have something called a designated runner, a pinch runner, right? And they will run the bases for that batter. And that's what Jesus does. He comes as our representative by living a life that we were unable to live. He perfectly obeys God's law. He runs the bases for us. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's obedience many were made sinners. We look at that and we say, that's a bad rap. Why? Because of Adam's sin. Am I labeled a sinner and I've got this inherited sin in my life? I don't like that at all. But then the next part of the verse is so good. So that by the obedience, so that one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
You know, it's funny, we look at Adam's sin and we say, I don't like that. I don't like that I inherited sin from Adam, but Jesus, he can go be my representative any day, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Vicarious, uh, paying for everything that I did wrong and doing everything right for me where I couldn't do it, I want that, that's good. Where any attempt that we might make to live out the letter of the law, climb that ladder, it was met with failure. Jesus succeeded on our behalf. He was our representative. Trusting in him means that you no longer have that task in front of you. It's already been completed. It's a funny thing, though. When, after we place our trust in Christ, for some odd reason, very often we put that law back on ourselves, don't we? And we fail here and there and all over the place, and we start guilting ourselves, and that starts leading us spiraling down further away from Christ when we should be hurled towards him. We need to remember this has been fulfilled. This was my job, and Jesus took care of it. It's amazing. But not only did Jesus abolish, nullify, complete the law by his perfect obedience, he does it by the sacrifice that he makes as well. He removes the consequences that we deserve. We might try to stand tall, put our shoulders back, our heads up, point to all the wonderful things that we have done in our life like the rich young man. But when we see our reflection in the mirror of that law, we're confronted with our failure. And the law sits on the bench and slams that gavel and it says, guilty. You are guilty. But you know, for those who trust in Christ, that guilty verdict is met with paid in full. The guilty verdict is accurate. It's totally accurate. There are no wrongful accusations here. There are no wrong sentences that have been given here. I deserve that guilt. It truly is mine. But that guilty verdict no longer has any power over us because the guilt has been washed away. The debt has been paid. When Paul says that Christ came and abolished the law of commandments, he's saying that the blood of Jesus, it removes any power that that law once had over you. The law has been abolished. Amen? This is incredible. After his death on the cross and rising from the tomb, Jesus appears to those 12 followers in the upper room. Remember what the first words out of his mouth were? Peace be with you. I don't think that was a coincidence. The job had been done. And Jesus shows up. And what is the the first thing? What's the thing he wants them to know? Peace be with you. The Prince of Peace had just made peace. That dividing line that separated Jews and Gentiles. The law that had been used to to draw such a big distinction, it had been marked null and void by the blood of Jesus. Peace be with you. For the first time since Adam and Eve, 
For the first time, they sinned. They created this division, this wall of hostility between them and God, between them and each other, between them and everyone else. All of a sudden, real peace could now be with them. What did this result in? Well, it resulted in the creation of a new humanity, Paul says. Before Christ, people's identities, they were wrapped up in, in gender, in social status, in employment, education, family history, nationality, successes, failures, accomplishments, all sorts of things. But the blood of Jesus powerfully recreates people into this, this new humanity. And it's one that's not dependent on geography. It's not dependent on nationality. It's not dependent upon political affiliation, on body type, on skin color, on athletic ability, on test scores, or anything else. Those in Christ have a new identity that surpasses all others. Ephesians 2.15 tells us, Christ abolished the law that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. I'm not, not the biggest fan of social media. Sometimes I think there's more harm that, that's done than good in it, but it's a useful tool, and my wife uses it, and, and our family, and we're sharing pictures and stuff like that, and, and that's wonderful, that's great. But one thing about social media that, that I've seen it move some Christians to do has been really encouraging to me. And maybe it's just a superficial thing, maybe it's a trendy thing, I don't know. But when I see someone's profile and they describe themselves and I see the very first thing there which reads something like, Saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I go, yes. Yes. And I hope that they really understand and cherish and value that. Because they have a new identity. They are part of a new human race here. And so we can gather in a place like this and call each other brother and sister. We started doing that my first day here and I barely even knew you. I still don't know some of you very well. And yet we are one people here. We may be from opposite ends of the earth. We may be from cultures that clash, from countries that war, from levels of society that just don't mix. But because of what Jesus did and the blood that was shed, we now share a common bloodline. One bloodline, the blood of Jesus, defines us. Because of Christ, people from Israel and people from Iran can be family. It's amazing. Because of Christ, a young black man and an elderly white woman can stand side by side and sing, In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Because all of us, all of us stand on level ground at the foot of that cross. <laughs> There's no room for pride, feelings of superiority, self-righteousness there. There's nothing. We, we all stood condemned. We were hopeless. We were frail. 
We all stand on level ground as we look up to the cross of Christ and have that immeasurable grace showered down on us. And it's incredible. And there we become a new creation. A new people. A new humanity. Christ tore down that wall that separated us from each other and it separated us from God. That's the second result. He created a new humanity, but then he reconciled that new humanity with God. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There were those who were near. There were those who were far. One, one people had been called out for a special purpose. They had been given the law. The other had not. Both needed Christ. You know, two people, could, they could jump off the Balboa Pier and they could start swimming for Catalina. One person might make it a mile or two. The other might make it like 15 miles. But does it really matter how far they got if they both drown? And that's the reality. Someone might look across the room and say, what a mess over there. What a disaster. Man, I'm so glad I have not made a train wreck of my life like she did over there. And Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast that first stone. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just like that wall was up between us and each other, that wall stood tall between us and and God. You couldn't pass it. We were hostile toward Him in our rebellion, weren't we? God, we don't want anything to do with you. We're, we got this. We're, we're good. We're doing our own thing. And at the same time, there was hostility from God. God's wrath directed towards sinners. It, 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 totally righteous. He was totally just in doing it, but it was there. There was a wall. We were against Him. He's against us. But Christ's body on the cross kills the wall, kills the hostility that we might be reconciled, that our relationship with God might be restored. In verse 18, through him we both have, this is a beautiful word, we both have access, access in one spirit to the Father. He is peace. He made peace, and he came and preached peace. The secret to lasting peace, it's Jesus who abolished the law, created this new humanity, and reconciled us to God. What Jesus has done for an undeserving world is absolutely incredible. He came, he accomplished, he shared the good news. But you know, it's possible to hear and even understand all of the things that we have just talked about this morning and not experience, not have the peace that Christ came to give us. Jesus has done everything. But once we've heard the message, it's left to us to respond. To say, yes, that's what I need. Or, 
Well, if you don't say, yes, that's what I need, you're saying, no, I don't need that, and I'm going to go my own way. I want to encourage you to trust it. Rely on it. And don't be like me, Christian out there, who you've prayed the prayer once and you've said, well, I'm good, I don't need this gospel message. That's for the beginners. No, this is for you. It's for me right now. Because I need to trust the gospel today. I believe that once you are saved, you are saved. But I need the gospel every single day of my life. Because as I step and stumble and fail, I need to be reminded that that was for me right now. And I need to receive that grace. This morning, if you haven't already placed your trust in Christ, or maybe you've wandered off and you've, you've started trusting in yourself again. You've started, you, Christ took it all away. He abolished law, and yet you start, you're starting to climb again. I want to encourage you. Trust in Jesus. Not just up here, but rely on it. As you do on the air you breathe, as you do on the water and the food you drink and the rest you need at night, rely on it. Jesus is what I need in this very moment. And many of us are are believers in this room. If you find yourself this morning still struggling with things in your heart that create dividing lines between you and others, I want to encourage you to remind yourself of what Jesus accomplished on that cross. Come back to the cross. The answer is in the cross. If there are things in your heart that say, I think I need to separate from this person or that person, they said something, they looked at me a certain way, and I think I need to back off. No, Jesus created a new humanity, and he covered all sins with his blood. Don't let those things separate you from others. Come to the cross, the exact place where sick, decrepit, needy people should be. Be in that place where the grace, the blood of Jesus flows and washes away every single sin that we've ever done and brings down those dividing walls. Let's come together as the family of God and unite together, not in our own strength, not saying, well, let's unite and be strong. No, because we unite because of Jesus, because we're all running to Jesus, and Jesus, you're what I need. And as we all come running to Jesus, trusting, relying on him, we're brought together, aren't we? And Jesus makes us one. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful Everything that we have is found in Jesus Christ. Without Him we are lost, we are separated, we are alienated, we are without hope, we are without You, the the One who is the greatest good in all of existence. We are separated from that, Lord. Thank You so much for Jesus Christ. Thank You for the work that He did as He represented us in His life and lived the letter of the law perfectly. He is righteous. And that righteousness is put on to us through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank You for that, Lord. And we thank You that Jesus Christ went to that cross 
And He took our debt upon Himself, our sin upon Himself, the thing that separated us from God, the thing that separates us from each other. And He paid it all. Thank You for Jesus, Lord. Thank You for the Peacemaker. Thank You for the Prince of Peace. We love You. Thank You for giving us Your Word and for the hope that we have in You. We pray these things in Jesus' name.